Hi and welcome to this latest episode from the 1914-1918war.com podcast. In this episode I'm going to go back to the beginning of the war and have a look at uh, some actions taken uh, to secure the British position in the North Sea in the face of the threat from the German high seas fleet. As always, if you could leave a review if you're enjoying this, it really helps other people to find it and it's reassuring for me that uh, people are enjoying it. And if I have time, I might try out a new section within the podcast where I look at events coming up over the next week or so in the First World War and talk about those a little. Okay, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold very vile to the sea. Other People's Dreadnoughts At the beginning of the First World War, Winston Churchill was justly concerned about the balance of power between the British and German navies. As the first sea lord, he was the political head of the British Navy, so, you know, he was entitled to his opinion. The main concern during this dreadnought age was the balance of power between the two fleets that would contest control of the North Sea, the British Grand Fleet and the German High Seas Fleet. During the opening stages of the Great War, the British had 24 dreadnought-class ships ranged against 17 German ships of similar strength. As Churchill wrote after the war, there was not much margin here for mischance, nor for the percentage of mechanical defects which in so large a ship had to be expected. He rightly identified that given these enormous machines had never been tested in combat, and that the British interest and strategy would always be based on maritime power, there was great value in any measures that would improve the margin and therefore the odds of a British victory. The problem was that building new dreadnoughts was a time-consuming business and the British needed ships now. Whilst the basic ship could be built in four to five months, HMS Dreadnought, the very first of this class of ship, was built between October 1905 and February 1906. To actually have the ship fully ready to take its place in the line took a year or longer. As luck would have it, there was a relatively simple solution at hand that would allow the Royal Navy to circumvent the usual lengthy build time for these enormous capital ships. Britain, as a major shipbuilding nation, had a number of ongoing shipbuilding projects underway, building capital ships for other nations, and these ships were designed to be at least as powerful as the ships the British were building for their own fleets. All in all, four dreadnoughts were under construction at the time of the outbreak of the First World War, with two of them being on the brink of delivery. Fortuitous for Britain, less lucky for Turkey and Chile, who had contracted for two ships each. On his authority as First Sea Lord, Churchill planned to requisition these ships and add them to the Royal Navy. Obviously, he was well aware that this move would be spectacularly unpopular with the ship's intended owners, who had entrusted British shipyards to build the centrepieces of their navies, but he reasoned that the British need was greater at this time, and this outweighed some difficult conversations with faraway nations. Chile had embarked upon construction of her two ships in response to Brazilian and Argentinian naval expansion as a part of a local arms race. 
Chile had ordered two 28,000-ton dreadnoughts, each carrying 10 14-inch guns. These two ships were still under construction in the summer of 1914, but would become available at a later date. The Turks had two ships nearing completion. The first was to be named Reshadaya, and as a 23,000-ton dreadnought, was modelled on the Iron Duke class, carrying 10 13.5-inch guns. The second ship, Sultan Osman I, was a true monster, and one of the longest dreadnoughts ever constructed, with an intended armament of 14 12-inch guns, making it one of the most powerful ships of any navy in the world. The Turkish battleships were nearer to completion than the Chilean pair, and represented the perfect opportunity to immediately augment British naval forces. Legally, the British were within their rights to requisition the ships, as the terms of the contracts had provision for the British to retain them in the event of a national emergency. But no matter how legally sound the move, and there are some doubts about that because Britain wasn't actually a war at this stage, this action was never going to prove popular with nations who were about to have their naval ambitions dashed. This was particularly true of the Turks. Turkey was not a rich nation and had moved heaven and earth in order to purchase these two prestigious ships that she hoped would allow her to face down naval threats from the Russian and Greek navies in the Black Sea and Aegean, respectively. The threat from the Greeks was particularly acute. Greece had already contracted to buy a dreadnought from a German shipyard and was in talks to purchase two older pre-dreadnoughts from America. The Turkish navy was in a parlous state and she hoped that the arrival of two enormous ships would significantly change the balance of power in the region. The Turks were desperate, as she lacked modern ships and had recently resorted to mounting fake artillery guns made of wood on one of its old battleships in the hope that it would be mistaken for a more modern ship and act as a deterrent. I think we can wonder if that was a sensible tactic, as if successful, the ruse might trigger more shipbuilding from rivals, and if unsuccessful, would reveal the abject weakness of the Turks' position. The Sultan Osman I and the Reshadaya were costing the Turks nearly £6 million, an enormous amount of money for a nation like Turkey. Some of that had been borrowed on the international debt market, but much of the money was coming directly from the Turkish people. All across Turkey, small villages and prosperous towns had raised money to pay for these ships. Other ingenious measures helped to turn the effort to raise money to pay for the ships into a national effort, with collection boxes being placed on the bridges across the Golden Horn, taxes on sheep, wool and bread, and in a move that we must hope our own governments never get wind of, in January 1914, all government employees had their pay suspended for one month. The purchase of the ships was a true national effort. The ship that was to become the Sultan Osman I had originally been ordered by the Brazilian government and the keel had been laid down in the autumn of 1911 in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The basic ship was launched in January 1913 and in anticipation of her entry into the Brazilian navy, had been given the patriotic name Rio de Janeiro. However, Brazil was never able to take delivery of their mighty dreadnought with its awesome battery of seven turrets, each loaded with two 12-inch guns. Unfortunately, Brazil became a victim of a collapse in the market for Brazilian rubber. As its major source of foreign currency, 
This unexpected development left a gaping black hole in the Brazilian government's finances and forced it to put the Rio de Janeiro up for sale before it was fully finished. Turkey seized the opportunity to add a game-changing ship to her navy and offered to buy the ship. The Reshadaya, smaller of the two ships, was ready to sail for Turkey in early July 1914, but the British suggested that she stayed in England so she could sail to Turkey with the Osman I. There's some suggestion that the British may have put out word that uh, the Greeks might have a submarine lying in wait for the Reshadaya, and therefore it would be safer to travel in a pair. With an eye on the worsening international situation, the Admiralty dropped a few hints to the shipbuilders that it wouldn't hurt at all if the delivery of the two ships was delayed a little, and it seems that might have paid off with gunnery trials and things like that taking a bit longer than normal. On the 27th of July 1914, in anticipation of receiving the pride of their new navy, 500 Turkish sailors arrived in Newcastle on a passenger steamer, ready to take delivery of the Sultan Osman I on August the 2nd. By the 1st of August, the ship had all but one of its guns on board and installed in its turret, with the last gun due to be delivered later that day. But by this stage, Winston Churchill had already made his decision and the Turks were about to lose their ship. Writing to Armstrong and Vickers, the shipbuilders, he said, In view of present circumstances, the government cannot permit the ship to be handed over to a foreign power. This left Armstrong and Vickers in a difficult position, with Turkish sailors and their captains still on board their passenger ship, just across the River Tyne, and they were concerned that the Turks might attempt to take control of their ship, and so, to prevent an awkward and potentially explosive situation developing, they placed armed guards at the dockyard entrance to prevent such an attempt. On August the 2nd, the British Army provided a company of troops from the Sherwood Foresters to protect the ship. They boarded the dreadnought and made it abundantly clear that this ship would not be sailing to Turkey. Whilst the British government was well within their contractual rights, it was aware of the political damage done to relations with Turkey, who at this time were contemplating an alliance with Germany. To make reparations, the British suggested that once the war was over, and remembering that no one expected a long war, Turkey would be given either two dreadnoughts from the British Navy, or they would be paid for their full value. In any case, under the terms of the contract, Britain were committed to paying Turkey £1,000 a day in reparations for every day she kept the ships. But this missed the point. The ships were a matter of national prestige, and the way in which the Turks were informed was light on details, with Sir Edward Grey, Britain's foreign minister, framing the action in terms of Britain's interests in a telegram on the 3rd of August. That same day, Turkey entered into alliance with Germany, not just on account of the ships, but the British action certainly hadn't helped. The Reshadaya was rechristened as HMS Erin and was sent north to join the British Grand Fleet, arriving at Scarpa Flow on the 5th of August. The ship went on to have a relatively unremarkable war, with a minor role at the Battle of Jutland probably being the most notable action of a wartime service. The Sultan Osman I was renamed to the more British-sounding HMS Agincourt. Its hole-in-the-deck toilets were replaced with more European sanitary arrangements, and it was sent to join the Grand Fleet at Scarpa Flow, arriving there in the early autumn of 1914. 
The ship's guns were considered so powerful that there was genuine curiosity about whether the ship would tear itself apart when it fired its first practice broadside. Luckily the damage was superficial with only some china plates being broken. However, it seems self-inflicted damage on her crockery was the only damage that her guns ever caused. Agincourt slotted into the routine of the Grand Fleet and at the Battle of Jutland fired 255 shells between her main 12-inch and secondary 6-inch armament, apparently hitting nothing. She was scrapped after the war. Following Churchill's actions, the British now had 26 dreadnoughts ranged against the German 17, so a definite improvement in the balance of power in the North Sea, and, you know, we can't be certain. Maybe this contributed to the Germans not wanting to break out so often. Uh, these are all imponderables. The story of the Chilean ships is slightly different due to the British reliance on imports of saltpetre, that's sodium nitrate, for munitions manufacture. The first ship, launched in November 1913 and completed in 1914, was named the Almirante Latour, and at the outbreak of the war, instead of requisitioning the ship, Britain purchased the ship and renamed it HMS Canada. HMS Canada joined the Grand Fleet and saw action at the Battle of Jutland. After the war, the ship entered the British Reserve Fleet before being sold back to Chile in 1920, where it went on to serve as their flagship. The second Chilean ship was partially constructed at the outbreak of the war. Construction was halted, and the ship lay unfinished until 1918. At this point, the British bought the ship from the Chilean government and began uh, converting it into an aircraft carrier. Renamed HMS Eagle, she suffered from various delays in construction before entering the Navy in 1924, going on to serve in the Second World War before being sunk during the Operation Pedestal convoy that was bringing supplies into Malta. Churchill's actions over the two Turkish dreadnoughts were a massive blow to Turkish pride, and this probably, amongst many other factors, helped to push them into the war on the side of the Central Powers. It feels to me like Churchill might have been acting in a silo, focusing just on his area of naval responsibility and discounting the wider, bigger picture, and writing off the Turks as an insignificant military power. We can argue that Turkey was likely to join the Central Powers anyway, although once they joined the war, their initial involvement and actions were pretty half-hearted and might show an unwillingness to fully commit. But was inciting further hostility against Britain worth adding two more dreadnoughts to the Grand Fleet? Given Allied attempts at Gallipoli to disrupt Turkish power of the Dardanelles, and the effort to defeat the Turkish campaigns in the Middle East, we have to wonder whether the running the risk of the tighter margins in the North Sea would have been worth it. I guess we'll never know, but it's interesting to speculate. And now, a quick look ahead at some notable anniversaries that are coming up over the next week or so. This project grew out of an attempt to document the events of the First World War during the centenary, and in this section I just thought I'd have a look at some of the anniversaries that are coming up over the next week. Hope you enjoy it. Starting in 1914, as the Germans were uh, very much pushing their way through uh, the Low Countries and northern France, the Germans were bombarding Antwerp on the 9th, and Antwerp had uh, surrendered on the 10th. Um, the first Canadian troops had landed in Europe on the 13th of October, and a Lieutenant Bernard Montgomery, who we'll be hearing more about in the Second World War, 
um, had got shot through the chest on October the 13th. Then jumping ahead to 1915, uh, unloading provisions at Gallipoli was being slowed down after storm damage to the landing piers there as the Allies tried to build up their presence on the ground. And sticking with Gallipoli, it seems that discussions were already ongoing about evacuating troops with Hamilton, uh, the commander at the ground, uh, estimating 50% casualties would be incurred. Uh, so Kitchener had said, well, no, we'll, we'll have to stick it out. Elsewhere, uh, Austro-Hungarian forces had occupied Belgrade as the Serbs had to abandon their capital um, and were struggling a lot with the typhoid outbreak. And uh, back in Britain, five German Zeppelins attacked London on October the 13th, 1915 and dropped 189 bombs causing 150 casualties, of which 71 people are killed. Time travelling forward again to 1917, on October the 9th, the British resumed the offensive at Ypres along a six-mile front, and on the 10th, uh, Lloyd George was giving a speech where he stated that there could be no halfway house between victory and defeat. Uh, by October the 13th, mud stops operation in Flanders, snow stops operations in Italy, and an intended attack on Passchendaele Ridge was postponed due to mud. OK, jumping ahead to 1918, on October the 8th, the British began the Second Battle of Cambrai, attacking with three armies and 82 tanks. They advanced about three miles and captured 10,000 prisoners. Also on October the 8th, President Wilson rejected a request from the German and Austrians uh, to have an armistice, uh, stating that no, you, you, the first condition of any talks is withdrawal from occupied territories, which the Germans weren't willing to do. Um, and then the following day, the Allied armies actually overrun the Hindenburg line, showing the, the parlous situation that the Germans are in. And then, uh, following that, on October the 12th, the German government accepts President Wilson's condition that their armies must be withdrawn before armistice talks take place. Um, the British and French forces continue the offensive. And uh, finally, uh, just October the 10th, uh, figures published by the Americans reveal that they've lost 20,000 men to the Spanish flu that had begun raging through the armies on the Western Front. Let me know if you like this particular feature. Um, either leave a review or contact on Twitter at, at WW1DBD. Um, and I'd be interested to hear from you. Hope you've enjoyed that episode. Uh, it was an interesting one to research. Uh, and I'll look forward to uh, you joining us next week. Thanks a lot. Bye.